Well, listeners to the morning show who think of me mostly as a classical music guy with a love for opera and, of course, uh, part of the world of public radio may be astonished to know that once upon a time I was a rabid fan of professional wrestling. And not only a, a fan, but a fervent believer that what was transpiring in that ring was absolutely real. And, of course, at some point we come to find out that... Uh, that it wasn't real, or at least not real in the simplest sense of the word. But that doesn't mean that uh, what doesn't happen uh, in the world of professional wrestling isn't truly compelling. And, uh, and it can be a, a tragic arena. And uh, the history of professional wrestling is explored in a very fascinating new book called The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling. The author is David Shoemaker, also known as the Masked Man, who's been writing about uh, wrestling for a number of years. And this uh, book is published by Gotham Books. And I'm very excited for this opportunity to uh, speak with David Shoemaker about the squared circle. David Shoemaker, we welcome you to the morning show. Thanks, man. It's so good to be on here. Thanks for having me. You're, you're welcome. Can you explain to our listeners the uh, also known as the Masked Man part? <laughs> Well, you know, every wrestling has his gimmick or his character. When I first started writing, I don't know, three or four years ago, my editor thought it would be funny to, to make me the masked man. A lot of thought really didn't go into it, but it ended up being um, a really cool thing for my career because people – I was an unestablished writer, but – uh, you know, all the readers started trying to guess who I was as if I was some reputable new, I mean, sports writer who was slumming it writing about wrestling. Um, that's kind of the same way that, you know, the master wrestler gimmick has worked throughout history, too. You put a nobody under a mask, and all of a sudden he's a deadly, you know, destroyer. Um, but hopefully, you know, through writing about wrestling uh, on the web and now in this book, The Squared Circle, I've, uh, I've, you know, hopefully shown that you don't have to slum it to be a wrestling writer. You can, you know, it's some, it's a, it's a crazy sport, but uh, it's, it's part of the fabric of our country, and it's, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, but it's, it's, you know, it's nothing to be embarrassed by. Right. You, uh, you mentioned that uh, the roots of what we think of as professional wrestling today uh, can be traced back to a couple of variations that. Uh, maybe we've seen here and there on a, I don't know, a old episode of Bonanza or something. I mean, uh, something really out of our of our distant uh, national past. Uh, remind our listeners about the the earliest roots of what we think of now as professional wrestling. Yeah, I mean, when I just when I started writing the book, I decided I was going to start it when you know it's a history of pro wrestling, so I wanted to start when wrestling became fake because really the sort of fakery is the most intrinsic part of it, right? So I go all the way back to, you know, the earliest days of the 20th century and like the early 1900s in small town America where they would have these carnivals that would just travel from town to town. And they were the best source of entertainment for most of the people that lived in the country. And one of the exhibitions they'd have would be a pro wrestling exhibition where they would wrestle each other for everybody and then invite local tough guys up. To, uh, to, to try to compete. And just like everything else on the Carnival Sideshow, it was fixed. You know, there was no way you were going to get one over on these wrestlers. Um, then when, you know, cities started growing up, they, had, they started getting their own, you know, this evolved into separate rest, little wrestling promotions that stayed in each city. Um, and then on and on until it's now this, the WWE is this major national company, but it never lost its carny roots. You know, it's always been a put-on from the very beginning. Right. Although it's interesting, I, I at, at several points in in your book, particularly in in its preface, you you, you kind of make that point that everybody's, in a sense, in on the joke to to some extent. 
um, unless you're unless you're a little kid. I mean, uh, I remember watching professional wrestling and roller derby, and yeah. absolutely believing what was transpiring before my eyes. And I still vividly remember my parents uh, observing me watching this, and then them saying, "You know, all of these people who you know are trying to bash their heads in." They all go out for dinner after it's all all over. I mean, the yeah. Los Angeles Thunderbirds and the Kansas City Bombers. I mean, and the whoever was just uh, wrestling. Uh, they all go out for dinner together and they they laugh and joke around and stuff. And I remember thinking, "You are so stupid. I can't believe you think that." And of course, someday you you do you come to the realization that yeah, they probably do all go out for dinner when it's all done. But I yeah. mean, there 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 has to be beyond children, probably certain people who uh, are not as fully aware as the rest of us that this is all scripted entertainment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I found quotes throughout going back as far as like the 1915 or 1913 or stuff like that where people are talking about, you know, openly acknowledging that wrestling is fake or being aware of it. But you're right. Uh, the process that you were talking about, about people trying to tell you the truth, is it's called in the business smartening up. You know, sometimes you get to smarten up some fans so they, so they know what's going on. Um, but, you know, I mean, there are people, obviously, that, that, that believe it more than other people. I, I sometimes relate it to, like, you know, everybody's got an aunt or a grandmother who watches soap operas, and it's not that she thinks soap operas are real per se, but she'll talk about the characters as if they're real, you know? Right. Um, and I think it's that. I mean, part of what makes wrestling work is this unspoken agreement between the fans and the wrestlers to that we're going to interact as if it's a real sport. Right. And uh, some people inter- some people are, are more invested in that than others. Uh, but, but what, you know, that's what really makes wrestling work. And even if you know that it's fake, if you're a person like me or you, who's totally, who's fully aware of it, um, what really makes for the most, for the juiciest moments or the, you know, the kind of moments of greatest passion when you watch it are moments where you're not sure anymore. Right. Exactly. That moment where you think, well, I know this is a put on, but those two guys on the screen, I read on the internet that they don't like each other, and now they're kind of acting like they really don't like each other, you know? And there's, it's those ways, those ways that it can play with reality versus unreality that, may, that kind of makes it uh, the, one of the most compelling things going. And, of course, it's, it's intriguing the, the variations that one also finds between the, the glitziest forms of professional wrestling, which, as you say, fully, gleefully embrace the fakery, uh, I mean, in a way that wasn't true, versus other brands of professional wrestling that are less on the national spotlight, but which uh, are not quite so glitzy and glamorous, and which seem to be trying to present to the public something which comes off as much more earnest, much more truthful in a sense, even if it too is scripted to an extent. Yeah, I mean, listen, when, when the WWF went national in the 80s and, and brought Hulk Hogan into everybody's home every week, um, it changed wrestling a lot, you know? I mean, Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan were showmen at their very core, and, and you know, it was a lot of kind of just just pantomime on a sort of mythological level, you know? I mean, it, it wasn't nearly as real as the kind of territorial operations that had been, you know, in a... Uh, all over the country and in the South, you know, just for a long for a long period of time, where people it was just tough-looking guys who would who would beat each other up. 
Um, and now you kind of see that same that same um, parallel today with you know the WWE is still kind of family friendly entertainment, this sort of wacky Technicolor. And uh, and then you know there's like indie wrestling companies around that starting with places like ECW back in the 90s emphasize you know real brutality in the ring. It's all put on, but they there's lots of blood. There's lots of you know they hit each other with weapons. They they you know it's it's a pretty brutal form. And it's like like you said, even though you know it's fake, uh, you know there's nothing fake about getting hit with a chair and busting yourself open. You right. Know? And Absolutely. so that's part of part of what wrestling is always playing around with. You tell us the full story of some of, of wrestling's uh, greatest legends, including uh, wrestlers like Gorgeous George from uh, years ago or more to our own day, like Andre Giant and Macho Man Randy Savage and so on. Uh, I really appreciated the fact that you also took time to introduce us to a wrestler called S.D. Jones, not so much for his specific story, but the kind of wrestler that he is, a jobber or a preliminary wrestler or an enhancement talent. Tell our listeners what these wrestlers are all about. Yeah, I decided if I wanted to cover the whole wrestling world, then I got, had to have a jobber in there. I mean, the uh, you know, there is this sort of, uh, it's, it's a little bit less today because, you know, every match has to be meaningful in this sort of, you know, fast-forward society that we're in. Um, but yeah, back in the 80s and in the 70s when I grew up watching wrestling, uh, the vast majority of matches were, you know, an established star versus a nobody. Just some, it looked like some guy off the street in the, you know, spandex singlet. They would put him in there and just, they'd get him body slammed a couple times and dropped on their head and that would be the end of it. Um, S.D. Jones was one of, was probably the most famous uh, was the most famous jobber, and and it was because WWF, you know, made him a star. They made him a guy that you would recognize and you could associate with. Um, not, but he never won. Sometimes he beat other jobbers. All these ham and eggers was the other word for him. But uh, his most important role was to get beat, was to be recognizable, and then to get beat up really quickly by you know established stars, which culminated most famously in his WrestleMania match against. Uh, against King Kong Bundy, where he got just slammed and lost in, in world record time. Hmm. You also point out that uh, in the days when there were various Midwestern or regional uh, wrestling companies, that in many cases there would be a world champion who would get farmed out to these different constituencies around the country. And often in those situations, that world champion would be brought in to make the champion of that region look good. I mean, not that he would lose, but there would often be scripted as a very tight battle, which in a sense would elevate the stature of, of, uh, of some of these regional wrestlers uh, to make them look even more imposing by, oh my gosh, uh, pushing world champion Jack Briscoe right to the edge. And, uh, and, and I mean, I think that's really interesting because it, it really shows another level of sophistication in terms of of figuring out who's going to win and who's going to lose and why. Yeah. I mean, that was an incredible era. And uh, it was a territorial era is what I call it in my book. And, and it was this period where every major city had its own wrestling company, basically. Most of them were united under the banner of the NWA, uh, the National Wrestling Association. But, yeah, I mean, they would, they, would, uh, they, they would have their own show. And if you lived in St. Louis or you lived in, you know, Seattle or you lived in Dallas – 
pretty much as far as you were concerned, the biggest wrestling show in the world was happening right there in your town. Absolutely. Um, you know, there wasn't cable until when cable television started up and and uh, the WWF, and then you know, at first it was championship wrestling from Georgia, but there, but you know, local places would started going on national TV. That kind of undermined everything. No one, no one could think they were all alone in the world anymore. Uh, but yeah, back in those days, the only way that you had to know that there was something bigger going on was when Jack Briscoe or Ric Flair or whoever the national champion was would come to town um, and always almost lose to your local champion. You're right. Um, it, it's weird, but they, they always have to find a, a, a new and exciting way to tell the story so that, uh, so that you know, you don't necessarily lose by losing. Right. And, of course, a big part of your book is the dramatic and often tragic stories of many leading wrestlers who have died way too young, uh, occasionally uh, dying in the ring from a, a tragic accident and, more often than not, uh, dying because of health issues related to maybe the ingesting of, of, of steroids or, or other facets of the lifestyle. Can you just say a word about... Uh, this darker side of, of the world of professional wrestling and, and how difficult it was to, to get the true story behind some of these tragic figures. Well, I'll start with the end first. I mean, in a world that's built on fantasy, getting to the truth is incredibly difficult. Um, that's part of why I focus on what some of these guys mean in a sort of broader metaphorical sense, because as a fan, what they mean to us is almost more important than who they really are. Uh, and that's a truth that I can get to. But, you know, a lot of these guys, even if they're trying to tell you the truth, they've been steeped in this fake world for so long that the line's blurry to them, too, and which is an incredibly interesting part of the, part of the story. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the wrestling industry is, is brutal. Uh, you know, as much as these guys just seem like invincible superheroes when we see them on TV, um, you know, people will tell you that, I mean, they've done studies where wrestling a wrestling match is like playing a game of football on the offensive line. And, you know, what NFL players do it 16 times a year and professional wrestlers do it 200 or 250 or sometimes 300. Mm. And then after every match, you've got to, you know, go out at night and then wake up and do it all over again and maybe drive in a compact car with three 300-pound guys for 300 miles in between, you know. I mean, it's a really, really tough life, and it's something that these guys really have to commit themselves to. Um, but it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's not just the brutality of the sport, because, but like I was saying with the, with, the, with the unreality of it, I mean, these guys a lot of times start believing their own hype and start believing that they're invincible, even if it's only, you know, painkillers and steroids that's allowing them to believe that. Uh, it's a tough life. And, um, and it's really, at the end of the day, what intrigues me is the way it underscores the difference between the gods we see on TV and the mere mortals that, that you know, live the lives the rest of the time. Mm. The book is The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling, published by Gotham Books. It's author David Shoemaker. David Shoemaker, congratulations on writing a fascinating book. Thanks so much for having me on, man. Thank you.